I'm, I'm glad you made it despite Isaías. You know, that's where you pronounce it, by the way. Anyway, um, but, you know, they, uh, the, 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 the times we live in are crazy times. And so praise the name of the Lord that we're able to get together and worship the name of the Lord. Today we're going to be, be starting a new series. And we're starting this new series. And, and here's the thing. We're going to talk about where do we stand. Where do we stand? And I don't know about you, but when you think about this, this is a question, where do you stand, is a question that is being asked of believers and non-believers alike. Uh, regardless, I mean, regarding politics, I mean, think about it. If you didn't know, this is an election year. Come on now. If you didn't realize that, right? So you're being asked, where do you stand on those types of things? When it comes to Black Lives Matter, the question is, where do you stand on those types of things? When it comes to masks, I mean, come on now. Where do you stand? I mean, these are questions that are being asked consistently by our culture. And here's the thing that we as believers have to understand is this, is that the church must answer this question. Are you here? The church must answer this question, but not by the standards or based upon the premises offered by those who are asking. See, for some reason, we seem to feel like we need to bow to the pressure. We need to bow to those in, in, in power or those who have the loudest voice in the culture. I was so, so encouraged by this young man by the name of Jonathan Isaac. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's a magic player, and he was the only player that stood during the national anthem. And you know, why I was, you know why I was encouraged? I could care less about the national anthem. I was encouraged because he stood up when everybody else is bowing down. And here's the thing. It's not, and I want you to know this. When you listen to his interview and they ask him the question, this is, this is what I love about him. This is why I stand with him. It's because when he was asked the question, they kept, listen, he is a black man. Are you here? You're going to ask a black man, do black lives matter to you? What do you think? He is a black man. Do you think he doesn't care about black lives? That is the most ignorant type of question you could ask somebody. It's like asking me if I care about Hispanic people. Hello. I love Hispanic people. I, I mean, hello, I'm a Puerto Rican. Are you here? And so the truth is, this man said, listen, I want you to know where I stand. And I want you to know that I stand for Jesus. I stand as a Christian. I stand as a believer. And so, church, what I want you to realize is this, is that you and I should not, should not give in to the pressure in our culture. We should not give in to the pressure of our world and what is going on right now. We are supposed to be a light. And I'll tell you this, when I listened to Jonathan Isaac's interview and I, you know, I, I heard his responses as they kept asking him the same question over and over and over again, right? They asked him like two questions outside of the same question. And, you know, one of them was, it was pretty hilarious if you look at, you could look at the interview. They're like, hey, were you surprised at how great you played? I was like, wow, man, that's pretty messed up. <laughs> like that was one of the questions. But, but nonetheless, as, as they asked asking this question, and, and he continued to say the same thing. He continued to say the same thing. He was saying it in different ways, but he was saying, listen, man, I'm a Christian, and I don't feel like this is the answer. But you know what? When you look out at his outside of life, and what I understand about him, he's, a, he's an ordained minister, and he's out there doing things in the community, ministering the gospel, and he's doing what, what needs to be done. He's proclaiming this truth, and so why does this matter? This matters because this is a series where, you know, last night I got a phone call around, I think it was around 8 o'clock at night. No, a little bit earlier than 8. It's about 
a phone call from my grandmother, and she was asking me, she was like, hey, are we having church tomorrow? And I'm like, yes, we're having church tomorrow. She's like, okay, because I just want to be sure. <clears throat> and then she proceeded to ask me. She said, so, hey, are you going to start that new series talking about end time stuff? And I was like, yeah, Grandma. She's like, you know, because you need to know people where you stand. And I was like, okay, Grandma. She was the first person a few months ago she called. She said, you know, I appreciate these series. When I was doing the Fruit of the Spirit series, we were, we were going through the, the fruit. And as we're walking through that, she's like, you know, I see the need for that. And I understand. But, 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 but I mean, really, she want, what she wants me to do, she wants me to make some statements about the end times and all this kind of stuff. And I'm going to talk about that over the next few weeks. But here's the thing that I want us to realize. What I want us to realize is that as believers, please, as followers of Jesus, you and I have the highest ethic. If you say you're a follower of Christ, you and I have the highest ethic. And we are called to do what? We are called to stand in fidelity to one. Are you here? We are called to stand in fidelity to one. And that is the one who died in shame, who rose in power, and commands us to be the light in the darkness. This is who we are called to stand in fidelity to, the one who died in shame. I want you to think about that for a moment because when we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, and in a couple of weeks we're going to walk through the book of Philippians, and we're going to get into Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of dying in shame. But what you and I have to understand is that when we think about the crucifixion, we think about the brutality, we think about the pain, we think about all of that, but we don't realize the shame shame that came with Jesus dying on the cross. We don't, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't connect those dots. You know why? Because we don't live in a crucifixion society. We don't live in a society where people are crucified, where people are executed that way. However, it is important for us to realize and for us to understand he died in shame. He died in shame so we don't have to be put to shame. He died in shame so we don't have to be ashamed of his name. I pre let, let, let me tell you something. Let, you, know, you know why I have to mention this thing about Jonathan Isaac, man? It's because you know how much heat he got from Christians? I, I, I didn't say the world. I said Christians, believers. I read an article where someone says, you know, the Bible says that iron is supposed to sharpen iron. And so I want to go ahead and sharpen this 22-year-old man and make it. And you know what? When I read the article, you know what I saw? It was shaming, not sharpening. But Jesus died in shame, but he didn't just die in shame. He rose in power. And that is the reason, church, why we are able to worship today. Because what? Because he rose in power. Because he rose with dominion. Because he rose with authority. We're able to worship as we worship in the first song. He is alive. He overcame the grave. That is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And so when we talk about where we stand, we stand upon that truth. We stand upon the truth of what our God and what our Savior has done, and we want to be the light. So the first question was, where do you stand? The title of this series is not where do you stand. The title of this series is where do we stand? Because it is not just about you, but it is about us. Are you here? Amen. It's about us. It's about the body of Christ. It is about the church. Where do we stand as a church? For sure, you're going to have to stand as an individual. But where is it that you and I stand? The second question that I was asked is, what's the plan? As we were walking through the last series, parenting, and we were talking about functional faith. 
The a question was asked to me, so, you know, what, what's the plan? What's the church's plan? Listen, the church's plan is what the church's plan has always been. From the book of, from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. So, so we see God creating, and then we see God commanding. And you know what God's plan was? Here's what God's plan was. Obey. Are you here? God's plan was obey. Has it changed? Nope. Believe and obey. Obey what I say. Believe what I say. Stand on what I say. And so that's the plan. And so this morning, I'd like for you to think about this, if you would. Understanding why you are here will move you into missional living. Understanding why you are here will move you into missional living. Now, here's what I want you to do for me. What I want you to do is when you finish writing that, for those of you that are taking notes, understanding why you are here will, will move you into missional living. What I want you to do is I want you to scratch out the two U's in that sentence. And what I want you to write over them is this. I want you to write what, what understanding why we are here will move us into missional living. You see, there's something that I want to do in this series. I want us to start thinking about us. I want us to start thinking not in terms of me and my individual life and my individual mission, but I want you to think about us, the body of Christ. I want you to think about us, the community of believers, because if we don't start thinking about us, you know what we do? We get caught up in just about me, mine, and mine's. It's all about me. It's all about my blessing. It's all about what I'm going through. It's all about, wait a second, is it all about you? We sang a song a long time ago, one of my favorites, it's not about us, but it's about Jesus, right? So it's not saying it's not about us corporately, it's saying it's not about you as an individual. It's not about me as a, as a man, you as a woman, as a man. It's not about us as individuals, it's about the body of Christ. Jesus, hear me now, I know, I, I know, I know you've heard this and I hope that you've said this to someone. Jesus would have died if you were the only person alive. Amen, this is true. But can I tell you something? You ain't the only person alive. He wasn't just thinking about you. He was thinking about a body of believers. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me. Please stand with me if you would. Open your Bibles to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, famous passage of scripture that you should know if you're a believer. I think you probably have heard this story before, the story of Esther. Esther is one of my wife's favorite stories in the scriptures. And I think we, we may think stuff when we look at the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4 is where we are. And so Esther chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 1. We're going to read this whole chapter together, and I want us to look at what it is saying. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When you got it, say so. And it says this. It says, Mordecai learned, when Mordecai learned all that had happened. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter voice, a bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now just pause with me for a moment because when you see this part of the story here, when you think about Esther, I don't know what you think about when you hear Esther. But when I think Esther, immediately what comes to me is what? It comes the preparation that she was making for meeting the king. 
But, but, but we miss the rest of the story here. Why was there weeping that was happening within the Jewish community? There was weeping that was going on in the Jewish community because after Esther became queen, her uncle, who was her father, Mordecai, he was doing what? I say her uncle who was her father because it was her uncle physically, but he was the one that raised her, so that makes her a dad, his dad. But here's the thing. Mordecai would not bow to this man by the name of Haman. He wouldn't kneel. Come on now. <laughs> he wouldn't bow to the pressure of this guy by the name of Haman. And because Haman got upset because Mordecai wouldn't bow, what happened was he went to the king and he said, King, and I'm giving you chapter 3 here. He went to the king and he said, King, here's what we need to do. There are these people that are within the provinces that you rule, and they don't worship according to the way that we do. Therefore, you know what we need to do, king? We need to destroy them. We need to kill them. We need to annihilate them. And guess what they did? They gave him a year. It's crazy. They gave him a year. To get, I don't know, to run, do something. But they gave him a year. And here's what they said. They told him, listen, in one year from now, in the 12th month, this is exactly what's going to happen. It was the first month when this all went on. And this decree went out to all of the king's kingdom. And when the people read this, they were mourning. They were weeping. If you got a, if you got a death threat, would you be a little worried? Okay, so if the president of the United States sent a letter out and said, hey, we're going to kill all Christians. Hmm, that might make you feel some kind of way, wouldn't it? Yeah. I'm just saying. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I had to pause there because we're reading all this weeping, and I want you to see that. But here we go. We're continuing on in verse 4 here. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Notice that, church. Mordecai was like, man, I don't, I don't want to feel good. I don't want to just go on with church as normal. I don't want to just feel like everything is okay. That's what she wanted to do. Hey, just put on some clothes. Everything is, wait, wait a second. Dress your best. This is not good for us. Mordecai wouldn't do that either. And then, and then Esther called um, Hathak, uh, one, of the, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. So not only did, did Haman say, hey, we should kill them, he said, I'll pay you to do this. I'll make a hefty donation for you to go on ahead and make this happen. Sounds like a, a lot like our political system today, but anyway. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 years days. For 30 days, she hadn't seen her husband. That's crazy, is it not? Man, that's crazy. But anyway, 30 days, she hasn't gone to the king. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. 
Listen to Mordecai's encouragement. I, I want you to hear the encouragement of a father. It's so beautiful. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, <clears throat> relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. That's encouraging, is it not? Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I pay perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you give us to be in your word. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. And so God, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. May your presence that is here in this room, continue to align our minds and our hearts to your will. And may we not just hear your truth, but may we obey it. Father, we give you praise and we give you glory for this. We ask this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. The first thing I would ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must stand. We must stand. All right, we'll try it again. Say, we must stand. There we go. In our purpose, In our purpose. For, the for the benefit of others. Of others. We must stand in our purpose for the benefit of others. Think about this story. Esther is in the palace. She's relatively comfortable. She gets this news. The people are going to be killed. The Jewish people are going to be killed. And Esther has this great opportunity that not everybody has. Mordecai cannot go in to the presence of the king and, and, and ask him for deliverance. There is one person in this moment that has the privilege to do this. But see, I asked you guys to erase something earlier to, to mark through it. So if you took notes, I want you to do this for me. I want you to remove the word benefit. I want you to just write through the word benefit. And here's what I want you to, what I want you to see. We must stand in our purpose for the deliverance of others. We must stand. See, when we think about the word benefit, I wrote the word benefit originally. And as I wrote it down and, and, and I thought about it, I said, wait a second, benefit. It's like we're having a, 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 a banquet, a benefit banquet. It's kind of like now we got this room set up for a banquet, right? <laughs> like we're, we're having a benefit ball. Well, wait a second. It wasn't for the benefit, and I know benefit means good, right, for the good of the people. But no, no, no. We have to see this for what it was. We, you and I, have to walk in our purpose for the deliverance of other people. There are people that need deliverance. And if you and I don't walk in our purpose, they will never experience the deliverance that God desires, desires for them to experience. The deliverance that Jesus died to secure. 
And so what do we have here? We have this situation, and I gave you a little bit of background. And so just to bring us up to speed here, so now we have Esther who is there before Mordecai. You know what Esther comes to realize? This is what I love. This is why I pause, right, to show you that word of encouragement because I could just imagine myself. I can imagine my daughter telling me something and me coming back with a strong re response like that and my wife looking at me like, babe, that was a little rough. Babe, that, that, that was, you know, pull me to the side later on and be like, I don't, I don't know. Not, not because she's unholy, but because, man, hard words sometimes. Those were more than hard words. Those were like almost threatening words. Are you here? And yet, I love her response. You know why? Because she wasn't part of some PC culture. Come on now. Everything didn't offend her. She heard God speaking through Mordecai in that moment. And this is what Esther realized. Esther realized that her safety was not as important as the deliverance of the Jewish people who were living in danger. She realized at that moment, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I am the only one who can go before the king in this moment. Therefore, I need to realize this. And here's what I want you to realize, church. This is why these stories in the Old Testament become so important. Because you want to know who was, who was being targeted at this moment? Jesus was being targeted at this moment. See, when we read Old Testament stories, we just seem to think, oh, the Jewish people were on the radar. Let me explain this to you. If you read the scriptures, and if you look at the book of Esther, I mean, Esther is written in between the first and the second return. After the 70 years of captivity, the children of Israel had been under Babylonian captivity. They survived that. They have been the target of the enemy. Now, listen, Haman was just a name. Haman was just a vessel. Haman was just a person. He was not the enemy the enemy is spiritual, church. The enemy wants to hinder the gospel, wants to hinder Jesus. And so from as far back as you can remember, you go back to the story of David and Goliath. Listen, it wasn't, listen to me. It was about what? If I can kill David, if I can bring bondage into the children of Israel, then guess what happens? No, Jesus. No fulfillment of prophecy, no fulfillment of the purpose of God. And so what do we have? We have Esther here who comes to realize this. She realized, man, i got to step up to the plate. I've got to do what God has called me to do for the what? Deliverance of the people. The people needed deliverance, and she stepped up. The battle that is raging in our culture right now. Listen, we can, and, and I say this with sincerity, we can look at all of the stuff that's being communicated and who's at fault and all of that stuff. Listen, we can do whatever. I can, I can show you statistics. I can argue for every, for, for every position that you want. You want me to argue that the issue is the Democrat, Democrat Party? I can do it. You want me to argue that the issue is uh, President Donald Trump? I can do it. You want me to argue that the issue is the Republican Party? I can do it. You want me to argue that the issue, I can argue whatever issue you want. You know why? Because I can make anybody an enemy. Our culture does it all the time. But let me ask you a question. What's the problem? What is the issue, church? What, what, what is the issue? What is the problem going on in our culture right now? Are, are, we, are we awake to that problem? Are we awake to the issue? Are we awake to what really is at stake? What really is happening? 
The issue within our culture that we see clearly, there is a spiritual battle that is raging on. And this battle is what? This battle is motivated by an enemy who knows that his time is limited. And what he wants to do is he wants to destroy as many people. He wants to destroy as many families. He wants to destroy as many communities as he can in the limited time that he has here. But I want you to realize this church, his number one target is us. What are you talking about, Bishop? His number one target is us. His number one target. The number one thing that the enemy's coming after is the church. Why? Because we are the covenant people of God. You and I, church, body of Christ, we carry the covenant words of God. We carry the gospel of God. We carry the truth of God. Therefore, what the enemy wants to do is he wants you to get distracted looking at him, looking at her, looking at them, looking at all this other stuff. He wants you to be silent with the gospel that is able to bring deliverance. That's what he wants to do. So what does he want? You want to know what we're seeing? Can I, can I tell you what we're seeing right now in our culture? What we're seeing right now in our culture, we are seeing the fruit of a lack of discipleship. Notice I didn't say a lack of Wednesday night Bible study. Notice I didn't say a lack of Sunday morning Sunday school. Notice I didn't say a lack of church services. Notice I didn't say a lack of small group curriculum. I didn't say any of that. I said we are seeing the fruit of a lack of discipleship. And so the generation that has risen up, that has questioned the truth, that has questioned the gospel, they don't have the answers that they need. Therefore, they are listening to these voices that are voices of deception. And so, church, we have got to be about the Father's business. We've got to be about making disciples the way that God calls us to make disciples. The same way that the enemy targeted God's people in the Old Testament to hinder the gospel is the same way that he is working now. The same way. The same way that he was working to hinder the gospel from from, from doing what God intended it to do is the same way he's doing that now. The same way he is trying to hinder us from being the people that God has called us to be. And here's the deal. If the church does not know where it stands, that, that, that we have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you get that? The crazy times we live in. I want you to know there is no mistake you're alive today. I'll say it like this. There is no mistake that you're sitting in here today. There is no mistake that whoever's going to listen to this sermon, there's no mistake on that. You know why? Because God wants his church to know where they are supposed to stand. He wants his church to know, listen, you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. For all the young people in the room, you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. God wants to use us as his church to be the voice that we're supposed to be, to be the ministers of deliverance we're supposed to be. But if we don't know where we're going to stand, I want you to turn with me really quick. Turn back with me. Or turn forward ahead just a little bit to the book of Psalm chapter 1. You don't have to go far. Psalm chapter 1. I just want you to read this. And let me challenge you. As you go through this time and, and, and you go through this, uh, this moment as we're in this series. I don't have a memory verse for this series. But, but, but I will tell you, I, I want to challenge you to, to commit to memory this chapter. And I want you to see why. Uh, Psalm chapter 1. When you got to say so. All right, I got one. So anybody else got Psalm 1. Psalm 1. So, all right, here we go. Psalm 1, look what it says here. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 
Now, I want you to notice what happens here. Notice the progression. The first one is they walk in the council. They walk. What, what is that? That's listening to. Oh, that makes sense. Ah, I, 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 you know, I, that resonates with me. Come on now. You hear that? Wait, wait, wait. So hold on a second. Then the next thing is they stand. So you see, you go from this. You go from walking, right? Just I'm walking. To now I'm going to stop. Now I'm going to stand in a path with them. Now all of a sudden I am connecting with them. Now all of a sudden I'm not just resonating with them, but I'm sounding like them. I'm, 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 I'm acting the way that, wait a second, because now I've stopped. I, I'm not just walking any longer, but I'm standing. And what's the next one? The next one is this. He says, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So you go from walking, right, having a good time, and you go, I'm going to pause for a little bit, right? I'm chilling. I'm good to go. And then all of a sudden we're sitting around a table together. And you know what happens, church? Here's the thing that I've noticed. What I've noticed on so many situations is good. I'm going to take a seat since y'all are sitting down. I'm going to sit with you. <laughs> but here's the thing that I've noticed. The one thing that I notice is that I hear more Christians mocking other Christians than I've ever heard before. What did he say here? He said, sits in the seat of the scornful. So the people who are not Christians should be mocking Christians. But why is it that believers are, are mocking other believers? Why is it that believers, I already told you about Jonathan Isaac, right? This young man standing up for his faith, instead of saying, hey man, we're going to applaud you. We are going to stand beside you because you're standing for Jesus. No, what do we do? We want to tear him down because he didn't align with the movement. Listen, sitting in the seat of the scornful, but look at what, what, what the writer of Psalm goes on to say here. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who walks not in the council, but his delight. Let me ask you something. Christians, can I challenge you? Let me challenge you. August, September, October, November. I think most of you right now, you know who you're voting for. I'm pretty sure you're solid on that. I'm pretty sure you don't need to, you're, you're, nothing, nothing between now and then is going to change your mind. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm just saying. Can I ask you, can, can I challenge you to do something? Turn the TV off. Can I challenge you to do something? Don't be a political advocate for anyone. Oh, Bishop, wait a sec. No, I didn't say don't vote. What I said is, don't be a political advocate for anybody, for any group. Be a voice for truth in the midst of this moment. Be in God's word. Let God's word, let the meditation of your heart be God's word. Not what people are saying. Not the fear that people are trying to produce. Not whatever's trying to happen. Listen, church, we need to be a light. We need to be a light. We need to be a light not for this party or that party. We need to be a light of the gospel in this world. What does he go on to say here? He says, he shall be like a tree, verse 3, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Do you want, it? Do you want that life? I don't know about you. Listen, and when I talk about prosperity, I'm not talking about being rich. I'm not talking about having everything you want. That is a lie. That is the American dream. That is not the gospel. 
God does not promise you everything you want. He doesn't promise he's going to give you everything you desire. But he promises you, you will be fruitful. He promises you will prosper in the purposes that he has for your life. But you know what? If you're listening to the counsel of the wicked, if you're standing in their path, if you're sitting in seats with them, guess what? Your heart is turned in the wrong direction. What does he say about them? Verse 4, the ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You know what our problem is in our, in, in our day and age, man? Is that we will not call a spade a spade. We will not call sin, sin. We will not call unrighteousness, unrighteousness. We, we pick and choose what we call sin instead of picking to choose what God says is sin. Instead of looking at what God says is righteous and living for that. Where do we stand? We should be standing upon the truth. The second thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must stand, we must stand. in anticipation, anticipation of the return of the king. We must stand in anticipation of the return of the king. Turn with me really quickly to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19. Hebrews 10 verse 19. I'll give you a moment to turn there. When you got it, say so. All right. It says, therefore... Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. Now, when you look at this little, little portion of Scripture here in the book of Hebrews, as the writer of Hebrews is communicating, he's communicating about our relationship with God, our ability to come into God's presence, our call to enter into the presence of the Lord. That is what he is speaking about here. And, and at the end of this thing here, he says something that I think is so extremely important for us. And it is, where do you stand on the day? Where do you, just, just look at me really quickly at verse 25. Looking, look, look at the end. So much the more as you see the day approaching. Let me ask you something. Do you see the day approaching? Do you see the day approaching like Faster, like closer than ever before. You know, it's kind of like when you're driving down the road and you and you know you see a sign. If you're looking at a GPS, right, really, and the GPS tells you, well, you know, you have 10 miles, right. So you know by the GPS that 
10 miles down the road, I'm going to see something. So by faith, right, you see it coming. However, when you get to like one mile, right, I don't know, it's something happens. At the one mile mark and you see that sign there, all of a sudden it's like, man, I can, I can see this thing coming. You get to the half mile mark and now you see this thing. It's approaching quickly. And if you're in the left lane, you're going to have problems. You got to get to the right lane. Come on now. Yeah. Especially if there's traffic. And so you don't want to be in the left lane. You want to be in the right lane. Are you here? You want to be in the right lane, if, unless the exit is on the left, then you want to be in the left lane, right? So it just depends. You want to be on the side where the exit is. Are you here? Yeah. Right? Like, that's the idea. And, and here's what, what, what the writer is saying here. The motivation for us to do these prior things is your position on the day. See, here's the problem. If you don't see an urgency when it comes to the day of the Lord, there's no urgency to do anything else that's in this list. Make sense? If you don't see the day of the Lord coming, it's just like you driving down the road. When you know you have 10 miles to the exit, there's no need to get to the side where the exit is because you have 10 miles to go. However, when you get to the one-mile mark, you better start veering. You better start moving into the right lane. You better start getting focused. You better start looking around because you've got to get off here pretty soon. Well, I want you to know it's not about you getting off. It's about the Lord who is coming. Is there an urgency in your heart to consider, man, the day of the Lord is approaching, and that should lead me to urgency. Can I tell you how urgency looks? Urgency looks like obedience. See, when there is urgency, you know what you start doing? You start doing the right things. When there is urgency, you start obeying. Remember the plan? Obeying. Hebrews eleven six, our vision verse, right? It's a verse that we have for our church, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. But those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So what's the vision of our church? The vision of our church is the plan for our lives. And that's what? To please the Lord in everything that we do. And so how is this? Let, 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 me, let me read to you what it is. And if you go through our Core Faith 101, this is what our vision says. Our vision is to please God by faith displayed through lives of obedience to the written and revealed direction of the word of God. Let me read that again for you. It is to please God by faith displayed through lives of obedience to the written and revealed direction of the word of God. Here's the deal. When we look at our lives, our lives are supposed to align to this word, is it not? Our lives are supposed to align to God's will, to God's word, the vision of our church from the beginning. The only reason why I'm standing here today is because of Hebrews 11.6. Because as a young man who was comfortable, just like Esther, I was chilling. I was good. Listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. If I could choose any role in the church, it would not be the lead pastor. Hello. If I could choose any position in the church, it wouldn't be one of the elders. It wouldn't be the pre no, it, it would not. Listen, let me go be a janitor. Come on now. All I got to do is make sure that, I mean, that's not all, but I mean, I just got to be sure this thing is clean. Come on. Let me, let, let me go be a youth pastor like I was. Hey, I don't have to deal with everything. He can deal with everything. Come on. Go to him. Well, you got to go ask the pastor. <laughs> so much easier. And yet, while I was praying and I was seeking the Lord, the Lord began to burn this scripture in my heart, and I couldn't stay still. And he began to show me and direct me and lead me to step out in faith and to do something that I never planned to do. 
So I'm here today because of what? Because of faith. Because I want to please the Lord. What are you living for? Are you living to please God? Or are you living to please men? Are you living for the applause of men? For the accolades of men? For the pats on the back of men? Or are you living to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? I would say we should be living for the latter. See, anticipation always produces action. If we anticipate, now listen, if you and I anticipate the coming of the Lord, then that means that we are going to be urgent about obeying God's word. And so what did God tell us to do? Now, here's what I want us to do for a moment. I want us to just go back and I want us to read this again. See, because here's the problem that I think happened. When I read this, you thought this was talking about you. And you didn't realize that this was talking about us. That's the problem with us. We read the Bible and we read ourselves into the story. We read ourselves into what's going on. You read the text and you're like, oh, yes, yes, I need to enter into the presence. Hold on a second. Look what it says here. It says, therefore, <clears throat> hold on a second. I got to get this. It says, therefore, brethren, say brethren. brethren. Y'all going to talk to me for a moment here. Therefore, brethren, say it again. Brethren. That means brothers and sisters, in case you didn't know, the, right? Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for who? What does it say? What does it say? Oh, I, I heard one person say us. Us. I need you all to talk to me now. Look what he says. Read this with me. He says this here. Who consecrated a living way for us. Through the veil, that is, matter of fact, when you see us or you see we, I just want you to repeat it with me. So I got to keep pausing, right? Yes, I got to pay attention here. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Church, it's not about you, it's about us. Coming into the presence of God, it's about us. Encouraging one another, it's about us. Exhorting one another, it's about us. Listen, I, I need you to get that. Like, please, when you read the Bible, I want to challenge you. Go back through your Bible. And as you go back through your Bible, especially the New Testament, I want to challenge you to really begin to look at how much Paul, how much Peter, how much James uses the word us or we. He's using, they are using plurals all the time. Why? Because it's not about this individualism that it, listen, it is, it is crippling us as believers, it is the biggest, look, I'm going to say this later on. I'll say it now, right, right now. One of the greatest issues in American Christianity is our individualism. Right. That's one of the greatest issues that we have because Jesus died to save you and your salvation is all about you. Wait a second, who told you that? Who told you your salvation was all about you? Who lied to you and told you that? Somebody, somebody was telling, oh yeah, for sure, you're going to give an account for your life before the Lord, but it's not all about you. Hmm. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we must stand together, must stand together. Against, against the forces of darkness. The forces of 
We must stand together against the forces of darkness. See, here's, here's, here, here's something that breaks my heart. Something that is breaking my heart as I look at the church today. The church in this very moment is missing the spiritual implications of what is going on. We are so consumed by, by what is going on that we're missing the spiritual battle that is taking place. You see, I wonder, see, when I, when I look at the way that some Christians post online, when I look at some of the conversations that people have, when I look at those kind of things, I wonder, man, how much time is that person spending in prayer? You know, a lot can, a lot can be told by the comments you make with regard to your prayer life. <laughs> Y'all thought, happy anniversary, Bishop's going to be happy. He seems mad today. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. I'm happy I get to preach, glory to God. I'm happy I get to share the truth of God's word. Listen, and I'm here to give you encouraging words like Mordecai gave to Esther. I'm not here to rub your back and say, okay, baby, it's going to be okay. No, no, no. This ain't time for okay, baby, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. The church has to wake up. The church has to awaken to the realities of what is going on around us. The day is approaching. And you know who else sees the day is approaching? Your enemy sees the day is approaching. And so what does he want to do? Well, there's some prophecies that got to be fulfilled in the Bible. And one of those prophecies is called the great apostasy or the great falling away. And so guess what the enemy's doing? The enemy's got, he's, he's locked and loaded. He, you are in his sights as the church because he wants you to fall away. He wants you to turn away. He wants you to say, I'll forget this religion. I'll forget this Christianity. I'll forget these beliefs. I don't want to be part. That's what the enemy wants you to do. That's what he wants. Because he knows. See, he's urgent. We're over here chilling like, I'm waiting for mine. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. You're waiting for what? Your Savior is coming. He is on his way. And the scripture says we celebrate communion. We're about to do it in a moment together. But when we celebrate communion, every time we do this, we do what? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As long as we're breaking bread, as long as we're, for us, drinking juice, as long as we are doing that sacrament, guess what? He hasn't come. We are still waiting for his return. But church, we got to wake up. Because we're the body of Christ. But you know what the enemy wants to do? He wants to keep us dislocated. That's what he wants to do. Has anybody ever had a dislocated bone? I've never had a dislocated bone that I know of for sure. But I know this. Playing football, I have done something. Like, it's called a stinger or whatever the case is. And it's like, we're, it, it's like a charley horse in your joint. That's the only way I can explain it. So just imagine that in your shoulder joint, like this charley horse that is going on. You can't move. You're like incapacitated for a moment, right? And then you kind of shake it off and you hope that, you know, they, they give you enough time so you can shake it off or else you're going to be walking around like you limp. But anyway, imagine learning to live like that. Imagine learning to live just, you know, disconnected. Learning to live. That, that is the reason why our gatherings become so important. My wife read a scripture earlier today. She read it. Turn over with me really quick. We're going to turn there, and then we're going to get ready to wrap up here. But Hebrews chapter 12, 
And, 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 and we already saw that the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10, verse 25, do not forsake the gathering together of yourself. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. Listen, we can't, we can't forsake the assembling of ourselves. For, for how long were we on isolation? Hello. For how long were we, were we not gathering for how long? See, what we don't realize, there's a spiritual issue that is going on here. So chapter 12, verse 22, and so it says this here. It says, but you, <clears throat> excuse me, but you have come to Mount Zion, which is symbolic of the church, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, and, and to, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Church, our gatherings matter. When we gather together, what, what the writer just said here, well, I, I don't know you, re, you know, I don't know about you, but I've had some beautiful experiences with Jesus by myself. I've had some amazing time with the Lord in prayer where I'm like, man, I wish I never had to leave this moment. And, and, I've, and I've had some great times online worshiping, you know, with you guys, never on a Sunday during the time that we were posting online because I was too busy doing something else, answering stuff, liking this, commenting and stuff like that. So I was never able to fully engage in the worship while we were online. But I've sat online, and I've, I mean, I've listened to songs, and I'm bawling, and I, and I feel the presence of God. And that's beautiful. But let me tell you something. There is nothing like gathering together with your brothers and your sisters worshiping the one true God. There is, there is something that happens. You want to know what it is? It's when we get together, we are literally entering into a different realm. We are literally entering into a different place. It's, it's not just because we came into a building. It's not about the building. It's about the gathering of the saints. It's about the body of Christ coming together. It's about us. And listen, church, this is the reason why this moment I had a conversation with someone the other day. And I said, man, the enemy is using this. And this was, this was when I say the other day. This is like months ago when we were in isolation. I was like, yo, how long is the church going to be told we cannot gather? Didn't God tell us to gather? There is so much New Testament stuff on this, and I, I'm getting ready to wrap up here. But, but church, understand this. The enemy wants us not to gather. You know why? Check, think, think about this. Think about this. Imagine if my wife and I could be married and I never have to come and be with her. That would be insanity. Hey, babe, we're married, but we're going to just talk on the phone. Hey, you know what? Now, now we have technology, so we're going to FaceTime. We're going to get real intimate with it. <laughs> Y'all just went somewhere that I was not going. But anyway, here's the thing. <laughs> that would not be a marriage. When I get offended at her, what do I do? Don't FaceTime her. Right? See, but when I'm married... And I live in the same house. Guess what I got to do? I got to go to bed with you. I got to sleep next to you. I got to wake up tomorrow morning with you. See, I have to deal with you in real life, in real time. Not on my time, in real life. That makes me deal with my stuff. Are you here? Guess what? If you were watching this preaching online and you don't like it, you know what you could do? Bishop's crazy. You could shut me up, walk away. That's what you can do. 
Try walking away in the middle of an argument. <laughs> oh, you want to be rude now? <laughs> oh, y'all been there. Y'all been there. Y'all laughing too good right now. <laughs> Imagine with your children. Imagine your relationship with your children. That was via FaceTime. That was whenever it was to your convenience. See, church, there's a reason why God says gather. Because what? We're supposed to gather in worship. We're supposed to gather in prayer. We're supposed to gather and be encouraged. And so what I'm saying is, and, and look, Pastor Aldo said it before I got to say it up here. He sent a message out to our Core Connect leaders, and he said this, fight for fellowship. Let those words resonate in your heart. Fight for fellowship. Listen, I don't care if you've got to wear a doggone hazmat suit. Fight for fellowship. If you're, if, you're, if you're so bound by fear because a germ might hit you, listen, fight for fellowship. Get a hazmat suit. Come on and say, hey, don't touch me. I want to be near you, though. Hello. I'm going to sit in my corner. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to worship. I'm going to come over here. I'm not touching anyone. I'm not kissing anyone. However, I want to be around you. Because you are the body of Christ, and I want to obey the command. Listen, I want you to know something. God doesn't command us things because they don't matter. He doesn't tell you to do things because that's no big deal. Listen, God didn't make a mistake. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants to have us bound in fear, bound in doubt, to where we are separating ourselves, and we're getting so used to Listen, right now is the ugliest time for Christianity ever. Think about it. Think about it. You, you, you haven't been around people for a couple of months, and they offend you. Guess what? You could care less, and you tell them how you feel. That's how, that's how we're living today. We just treat, we, we mistreat people. And if you don't believe me, just scroll through Facebook a little bit. Oh, that's all you got to do. Or go on Twitter if you like Twitter. You can do that too. Twitter's a little bit more confusing. However, just go through there, and you'll see, man, where is the stirring up love? Where is the encouraging one another? Oh, we haven't been around each other, so it doesn't matter. Hmm. Listen, I'm closing. I said this earlier. I want to say it one more time. The greatest issue for the American church is the individualism that governs our lives, including how we interpret this Bible. See, when we read this Bible too many a times, we, we read this Bible thinking about promises for me. Instead of promises for we. See, the moment that we start to realize that this thing isn't about me and it's about we is the sooner we will stand together against the enemy. So here's my closing question for you. As if the rest of this message wasn't crazy for some of you. Like, wow. If you were to be judged over the last few months of your life. Would God say to you, well done? Think about this. If you were to be judged from March to today, short period of time, would God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you standing on shaky ground like, man, See, the beauty of this, I said it earlier, is that we stand in allegiance to one, the one who died in shame, the one who rose in power. 
And so if you say here today, you know what, I believe that he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, because I've continued on in the mission of God, because I've continued doing what God has called me to do, because I've continued to be a voice, be a light, because I haven't been bound by all the hype and all the things that are going on, but I've remained steady. If you say that, praise the name of the Lord. But if you're like, man, I have fallen short. What I want you to know is the first person, it's only by the grace of God. And the second person who says, man, I've fallen short. If I, man, if I had to stand before him today and he was judging me over the last few months of my life, the beauty of it is that Jesus says, come to me. He says, repent. He says, confess. He says, to humble yourself before him. Let's all bow our heads, please. Father, we come, we come to you. Lord, we need you more than we even realize. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would help us. Help us to live a life that is filled with faith and not fear. Help us to live a life that is overcome and overwhelmed by your love for us. Help us to live for your glory and for your honor in all that we do. Father, may your spirit draw us nearer to you. We pray this in Jesus' great name, amen. We're going to prepare our hearts, or we're going to prepare for communion. Hope our hearts are prepared for this.